You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome once again to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry. Got another excellent interview for you this week, but before we get into that, let's talk about our sponsors, MailChimp, Hover, and Creative Market. MailChimp helps entrepreneurs and small businesses with their email marketing efforts by letting you manage your contacts, send emails to them, and letting you track the results. MailChimp just had another update a few days ago that gives you in-app access to their huge knowledge base of information video content blocks that you can put in YouTube and Vimeo videos in your campaigns and subject line emojis. I actually send out a weekly newsletter for, you know, sponsors and donors called the Fist Bump Bulletin. I have a little fist bump emoji in the subject line, so that's pretty cool. Take all these features for a test run by signing up for a free account at MailChimp.com. If you want a new domain name for your next project, you should check out Hover. They've got hundreds of top-level domains to choose from, they offer free private registration, and they have world-class telephone and online customer support. I teach a course on WordPress for Media Bistro, and I also recommend Hover to all my students as well. Purchase a domain today, use the promo code 28DOTW, and save 10% off your purchase. Creative Market sells graphics, fonts, themes, photos, and a whole lot more starting at just $2. They give away a selection of free goods every Monday, today is Monday, and they've got great bundle promotions every month. Head over to creativemarket.com and check it out. Revision Path is excited to partner with Lesbians Who Tech for the 2015 Lesbians Who Tech Summit in San Francisco. It's actually this week on the 26th. Save 25% off registration with the code LWTREVPATH. I'll also include that link in the show notes. Now, for those of you listening who will be attending South by Southwest, my presentation, Where Are the Black Designers, is going to take place on Saturday, March 14th at 5 p.m. at the Austin Convention Center in Ballroom E. Hope you can make it. I'm also going to do some other interviews while I'm there. I've already identified a few people to talk to. I'm going to speak at some local businesses as well. If you're going to be at South by Southwest or if you're listening and you're in Austin, please let me know. Love to meet you. It's going to be a whole lot of fun. I might even have some Revision Path swag with me, so... You have to contact me to let me know. Now let's get to this week's interview. When I asked Ashley Nelson Hornstein what career advice she would give to her teenage self, here's what she had to say. Man, if I could go back, I would just say, just take computer science. This like, you love this. Like, just keep plugging at this. It's difficult, but that's okay. And uh, eventually you'll find the mentors and it'll be fine that you don't look like everybody. This is Revision Path. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Ashley Nelson Hornstein, and I work on the iOS team at Dropbox. So at Dropbox, our mission is to provide the best place to store your stuff and bring it to life. And I'm working on the bring it to life bit. Right now, I'm exploring better ways to present the stuff inside of your Dropbox on iOS, and hopefully later this year, ship ways that make it easier to find and engage with your content. So when you say kind of presenting, you mean more so just like in a visual way or across devices? How does that work? Yep, in a visual way. We're exploring some ways to uh, present your photos to you in maybe bigger formats or ways that make more sense as opposed to having them sort of sequestered in their own tab. Okay. Tell me how you got started at Dropbox. Uh, So I started at Dropbox about 10 months ago. My first project was working on accessibility at Dropbox. 
And that was something that I was really interested in because one of my mentors works on the OS X team for accessibility at Apple. And so about a couple of years ago, he got me interested in accessibility and really ensuring that the apps that you make can be used by a wide range of people. So for me, being able to come in and, and the first project I work on be accessibility was really exciting because this is an app with millions of users and there's actual communities that sort of rate apps based on their accessibility to low vision and blind users. And reading some of the stories about people sort of struggling to even be able to log into the app and, and use it on a basic level really you know, touched me. And it was something that I was really excited to work on for sure. What's a typical day like for you at Dropbox? A uh, typical day. Right now, I would say I'm in project mode. So I'm, I'm working on this prototype right now and getting it out to the office beta and then eventually into users' hands. And so right now, it's a mix of actual coding and implementing the features that have been designed by our designer. It's also catching up with our designer to make sure that what we've created is his vision. Co a bit of coordination because one of my teammates is also working on the project, but also sharing, splitting his time rather with another project as well. So it's sort of a mixed bag of those. I try to stagger my afternoons, though, so that it's, it's primarily maker time and I can just sort of focus on the actual product I'm coding. So when you're in project mode, like what's your workflow like there? When I'm in project mode, typically one of the first things I do is open our shared document where we're keeping track of the timelines, what features are going in, which features we need to work on. And maybe for that week, if, it this, if it's the start of the week, I'll figure out which features actually need to be made this week. Then from there, it's, it's opening up Xcode and actually programming in Xcode and building the features that we've discussed and talked about. Now, one thing I noticed as I was going back and kind of doing my research is that you actually started out at Apple. Now, tell me kind of what was that experience like? How, what did you learn from there? Yeah, I actually did start at Apple uh, right out of college. I was lucky enough to get an internship at Apple on the West Coast while I was living, still living on the East Coast and going to school. I actually never been out to California. So okay. for me, you know, an internship at Apple was a wonderful opportunity to explore Silicon Valley, see if it was for me, and also join the tech industry because previous to that, I had been an intern in the financial services industry at Goldman Sachs. So luckily, the internship went great. I was invited back as a full-time employee, and I jumped at the opportunity, particularly because my division had a rotation program. And essentially, that allowed me to explore different groups within my division to sort of figure out which area of technology I want to focus on. And for someone like me who interned on the networking group, it was a great opportunity to switch to software development and focus on that. So I actually started on the Apple Online Store team when I started at Apple. And, you know, that only lasted just a couple of months before I immediately switched to native development, uh, particularly Objective-C and, and, and programming on iPhone. And more or less, I've never looked back. So for people that might be interested in getting into, you know, iOS development, what sort of resources and things would you recommend they check out? It is such a wonderful time to be into technology or to be interested in making apps. It feels like the resources have never been more available in, in terms of creating apps, as well as sort of the teaching tools have never been more abundant. One of the best resources, though, that I found, I, I love books. So for me, Stephen Cochan's Objective-C 2.0 was a great introduction to the language that I was going to be using. And then Aaron Hillegas's Big Nerd Ranch company creates a number of books in a bunch of different areas that focus on Apple technologies. I read the iPhone programming guide and that one I found really great because you got a chance to 
build something first without really knowing exactly how it worked. Sometimes books start off with all the intricacies and you don't see where things are headed or where you're going. And I really like that the Big Nerd Ranch books are very sort of tutorial focused. And so you will actually build an app or build a control or something and then work backwards from that. So I found those really great. But there's a number of tools online now. There's lynda.com, Coursera. There's a bunch of free tutorials as well on, on people's blogs and websites. It's, it's great time. Now, I know that Swift is a, a programming language with iOS that has just recently come out. Has there been a big shift going from Objective-C to Swift, or are they kind of both staying in their own lanes right now? So Swift is very much still in development in its own right. Okay. And so what that means, though, is that people are practicing. You know, some people are actually shipping software with Swift, definitely production software. I don't know if they're shipping entire apps yet. But they're practicing. They're seeing how Swift works on its own level and, and entirely separate from Objective-C. And so that makes it really interesting. As a result, people are getting interested more into functional programming or even reactive Cocoa. So even though there hasn't been a total shift to Swift yet, and I think we probably won't see that for a number of years, there's been interest in how we can make apps differently, how we can think about the code differently, how we can sort of improve it or make development faster. And I think that's been really interesting to watch for the community. Yeah, reactive cocoa kind of sounds like a, a mutant hot weather beverage or something. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because it's been out for a couple of years now. And you would think it just came out the way it's been used as such a buzzword. And it's because of really? Swift. People are sort of coming out of this idea that I think sometimes in the Apple community, we look at just the way Apple does things. And that's the only way we want to do it. You know, we want to follow their path. So sometimes integrated development environments, for example, that aren't Xcode that people create, there's like a reluctance to adopt them. And so now, though, that Apple's created Swift, which is a different way to create apps as well, people are sort of expanding their minds and thinking about, well, what other ways can I make apps? And so now all of a sudden these technologies that have existed that are community generated are now getting looked at. But I, I think if you want to learn Swift, I wholeheartedly encourage it. I think you also need to be sort of pragmatic, though, and realize that you should be learning Objective-C as well and allow them to be their own languages. But it's really important to understand how they interoperate because they're going to be doing that for a couple of years. Now, from your time at Apple, when you worked there, afterwards you went to go work for Circa. Circa is this really beautiful, great news app, really, really well done. And you were the lead developer there. What was that experience like going from kind of working on a team to now being a lead? I had always wanted to be a part of startup culture. In college, I got really into a podcast named This Week in Startups. And so mm. for me, moving from Apple was more about, one, the chance to be a part of a startup in a much smaller organization, and two, a chance to actually work in San Francisco. Up until that point, I had been living in San Francisco and commuting down to Cupertino, which a lot of people do, but it was just starting to wear on me after a couple of years. So for me, Circa was a great move in terms of uh, getting the responsibility of being the, the sole iOS developer on the project and also the responsibility of knowing that this team was going to be relying on me for this. So I think I learned a lot from the experience in terms of because, again, we were only a company of seven people, you know, a CEO, a CTO, a designer, an Android developer, iOS developer, a server engineer, and we had user ops. And so it's really interesting to work in one room on one project, concentrate. And I think it's a tremendous experience if people can actually swing it, because I know a lot of times startups can be very time consuming, even though some of them are developing now and, and getting better about that. 
But if you can sort of devote the time or invest the time and you actually believe in the product, it can be a really great way to grow your skills and to just sort of challenge yourself. What's been your favorite project to work on? Like take into account everything that you've done so far with your career. What's the thing that you've most enjoyed working on? I really enjoyed improving the accessibility on the Dropbox for iOS app. It might not have impacted a ton of users, but each one of those users, I felt like it impacted in such a strong way to the point that even though the project was considered, I don't want to say over because it's an ongoing thing and you want to constantly make sure that your accessibility is up to par. But, you know, I, I'd moved on to other things like state restoration, for example, which it's funny. I use it in the airport all the time. It, it basically means that when I close the app, and I don't mean, you know, background switching, but if I go to a bunch of other apps and the Dropbox app ends up getting closed by iOS, actually ended, terminated, and I open it back up, it's back to where I would just was in, in the system, or in the app, rather, which is great because let's say I'm in the airport and, like, my ticket's in the Dropbox app instead of being in Passbook, maybe where it should be. Uh, I can just open the Dropbox app and there's my boarding pass. So that one was, you know, fun to work on, and I certainly get a lot of utility out of it. But I think the accessibility one, just seeing... It didn't matter how many users it was, right? And to know that some people were using it for actual work because we have Dropbox for business as well was just so tremendous to just help them in small ways, in ways that they could actually just use the product on a basic level. And, you know, I got so into it and so involved with it that we actually made a group that we invited users of VoiceOver to join. And the idea is that we are going to give them pre-release builds of the Dropbox app and have them give us feedback on our voiceover support before we ship new items. Hopefully heading off situations where the app sort of maybe becomes unusable or is in a state we wouldn't want it to be in for our voiceover users. And that's a particularly important this year, again, with all the redesigns that we're coming up with. So for developers that, are, that want to get into accessibility, I know before you mentioned some resource for people that just want to get into learning, you know, iOS design, but... For people that specifically want to get into accessibility, what would you recommend for them? Like, what are some things that they need to know? So Apple has a great accessibility guide. And, you know, that can just be Google. That's, that's wonderful. It sort of takes you through the steps. There's one for users as well as programmers. And that takes you through what gestures, how to enable it first off what gestures you might use once voiceover is enabled because, you know, the, the phone behaves a little bit different when voiceover is enabled. So, for example, you get a selector when you enable voiceover. And you swipe to the right or left to move your selector around, and it will name things for you, which buttons are on the screen, what text is on the screen. And if you actually want to activate a button, you double tap the screen. So it's a different way of interacting with the device. And the accessibility guide can help people, you know, sort of wrap their heads around how the phone behaves now. There's also a great third-party website named AppleViz, and that can be accessed at appleviz.com. And it's literally all about empowering blind and low vision users of Apple products and sort of like it'll name, you know, which third party apps are accessible, which aren't, which features to, to stay away from. And, you know, it's just like a, a great support forum for the community. So those are really excellent resources. How do you kind of find the work that you want to do? I mean, I guess, you know, with projects, they sort of end up coming, you know, down from higher ups and things like that. But in the event that you have any sort of personal projects that you work on, how do you kind of find that work that speaks to what your values are? So I've always been particularly interested in user interface. For me, even at the beginning when I first started coding, I never really got the point of building things in command prompt 
or building like a calculator, like that didn't make any sense to me. So right. for me, apps are great because you actually get to build, you know, this visual product and actually t- touch and manipulate it. And so typically my personal projects end up involving some sort of animation or just trying to see how far I can stretch UIKit. Recently, though, I've been particularly interested with low level. And so I've been doing more C projects and I'm just studying, getting started with those. But, you know, it could be anything from like taking LibEvent and trying to build a web server with it. And it's funny because I should be operating at this higher level. Even Swift now is, a, is an extra layer almost on top of, on, of what you can do with Objective-C. But I find mm-hmm. myself particularly interested with what's going on at, at, at the machine level. One thing that I've seen from doing a lot of interviews with with Revision Path is that there's a lot of talent that is out there in the tech community and design community, but there seems to be a lack of of mentorship. Like there's not really anyone that is reaching back to the, the, you know, or reaching forward, I guess I should say, to the next generation to kind of see what they can do to keep things going in the community. Did you have any mentors that really helped you as you went along your journey? Yeah, I for sure did. I sort of have this motto that I collect mentors like Pokemon cards. And what that <laughs> what that means essentially is that I do what I can to cultivate relationships with people that are in a position that I aspire to be in or already doing what I want to do at a higher level. And I find that these people are great just to sort of bounce ideas off of for what direction to, to take my career, you know, what I should be negotiating for a salary what projects I should be working on based on what I want to learn. And so there's been a ton of mentors throughout, you know, anywhere from college. At college, I reached out to somebody who was in the games industry to figure out if the games industry was for me at that time, and that was in 2008. And at Apple, there was numerous mentors that I reached out to because I was getting into this iOS space and I didn't know, you know, really anything about it, which books I should be looking at. I had a mentor who helped me figure out sort of Apple's design paradigm and because the Apple's design paradigm definitely informs how third-party developers make apps and sort of how to fit within that space. My mentors now help me figure out anything from what projects I should be trying to work on at work to, again, if I'm trying to grow my skills, what projects I should be working on outside of work, to even my writing, helping encourage my voice, which I've really been trying to get out there on my blog lately. So let's talk about the blog. You have a recent post that's on your blog uh, that's titled On Recruiting, where you kind of break down what it is that tech companies need to do to really recruit new talent. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. As you said, the blog post is called On Recruiting. It can be found at uh, blog.ashleynh.me. And the entire point of the post is there's just such a, I want to say, tone in the industry, you hear it constantly in Silicon Valley and maybe, you know, not outside of Silicon Valley, if you have the the CEOs of the biggest companies saying it, like I I believe Mark Zuckerberg said it at Facebook, there's just this feeling like we don't have enough engineers, you know, we're struggling. If, If we could find all of the best engineers, we would hire them immediately, you know, regardless of size, but we can't just find them. And I feel that as you said, you, you know, there's, there's sort of like a dearth of mentorship in the industry. And I, I'm seeing it now, especially as I get more and more involved with recruiting. There's a general sense and feeling that even if we bring in interns, they need to hit the ground running. It's crazy to me because this individual is still in school. They're still growing. They're still figuring things out. You know, if people didn't let me come into a position without really knowing if this was for me or if I knew exactly what I was doing, I wouldn't have gotten to try all these wonderful things and then eventually found my way to iOS. 
And even that program that I was in as a new hire helped me by giving me a chance to try out different groups as a full-time employee. And so I'm seeing a lack of this at other companies, a lack of willingness to bring in people who maybe are, have demonstrated excellence in something else other than coding and who aren't the, you know, the extreme 1% who've gone to the top eight CS schools and all fit this, this one template of what it means to be a computer science student. And it's scary. And, it, it, you know, we wonder why we're getting so many people at companies who all look and sound the same and why we're having so much groupthink. And I just feel like it's such a disservice to all of the kinds of people we could be bringing into the industry when you're unwilling to mentor and bring someone up that's interested, but, you know, maybe won't hit the ground running as quickly. And I, I think also that if you were willing to mentor that individual, they're going to have such a feeling of wanting to give back to your company. They're going to be yeah. so grateful for that time you invested in them. It seems so obvious to me. I see so many companies unwilling to make that investment or feeling like it's a bigger gamble. And they're, I feel like they're fooling themselves, quite honestly, because anybody you hire is going to be a gamble. You, you know, you're yeah. just thinking that because you've hired someone else that's kind of like them, it's going to be a perfect fit. And that's that's entirely the problem. And that's why we have so many companies that are so homogenous. Yeah. I know when I first started, I mean, well, when I say hiring, maybe not on for like full time jobs, but even when I was just hiring people for my teams back in like 2009, 2010, it's that same thing. Anyone that you bring on is going to be a gamble. Even interns that I brought on have been a gamble because they may do great to get in the door and then they don't do any work. Yep. Or they may do great when they get in the door and then they have to leave a month later for some unknown reason or something. Mm. But I think, like you said, a lot of it goes into investment and the companies are not willing to invest that that time to really sort of nurture an employee, which when, you know, businesses talk about having a culture fit, it's not about the person, I feel like. It's about making sure that whatever that cog is in the machine can be easily interchanged, right? Oh, absolutely. Like they're not making sure that they're bringing in someone that they can work with and nurture that can be a, a really influential part of their company. It's like, okay, we need another, I don't know, 10X developer that went to Stanford or something that we can mm -hmm. just plug right into this role yep. and just get started, you know, without any sort of time being wasted, with any, without any sort of uh, affecting their bottom line or something like that. Uh, yeah, a lot of companies are not doing that investment. I don't know when the tide shifted, but it is problematic. And so that's definitely what's ended up happening with like you said, the, you know, the group thing or the lack of diversity or things like that, because they're not really spending that time to nurture people. I think we've all seen these job openings where, you know, they want you to come in and you've got to have five years of experience right out of school and this, that and the yep. other. And it's like, mm -hmm. I don't have that, but I've got other skills that you could use. But the company is not trying to they're not trying to bring you in and, and build you up. They just want to plug you in. You're just an interchangeable part. And it's crazy and, you know, because, sorry to interrupt, but it's like it's crazy because those are the people that all the companies are going after. So you're spending yeah. all these resources to hopefully get these individuals when I feel like that time, all that energy needs to be devoted on your training programs, on your programs to bring these people in, cultivate them and grow them. Definitely. Right. I remember when I worked at, oh God, this was it's probably like 2005, 2006, I was working for the state of Georgia and I was trying to get my boss to sign off on going to a conference. And it was just like a, it's a, actually the conference was in town. It wasn't even something that 
had to, you know, go and pay airfare and things for it. But I was like, there's this conference in town where I'm going to get to learn more about X, Y, Z. And I remember her response clear as day, because as soon as she said it, that made me not want to ask for anything else. She's like, I don't know why you would want me to sign off on this when all you're going to do is leave in a year. And I'm thinking, wow, wow. wow. Okay. I mean, I left in a year's time, but that really didn't have anything to do with she it. But really you know, it, it, what was going to happen? Yeah, yeah. It's like it's just sort of putting them mind. Like, and I don't know if that's something that maybe companies are thinking. Well, I don't know if I'm going to put this much into it. If our, you know, attrition rate is this many percentage of employees a year, what's the point? Mm, definitely. And it's funny because you know the, exactly those moments are the times when you're like, man, my company. If she had, you know, said, "Hey, go you learn. If it's valuable, I trust you." which is actually what my manager says, which is why I feel very lucky, right? My manager now says, those are the moments when you're like, this company really cares about me and my growth and where I'm headed and makes you want to invest even further back in them. And it's, it's right. amazing to me that people, I guess, aren't seeing that connection or something. I don't know what it is. I've also heard anecdotally people say things like, oh, we'll let the bigger companies or the other tech companies handle mentoring people. It's like, if you do that, they're going to stay there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wow. It's interesting. That's even something that's still going on in Silicon Valley. I feel like because there's there's all these things that are talked about with companies as it relates to perks that you would think that nurturing your employees would probably be the biggest perk that you could offer. You know, yeah, maybe you have catered meals or casual Friday or something, but actually nurturing your growth as an employee, really kind of as a person. I mean, I would think anywhere that I would want to work, that would be something that's beneficial. They're not just going to have me there until I leave, you know? Definitely. What keeps you motivated and inspired? Oh, God, all the people in the community. It feels like, especially the iOS community, I guess I don't know how it compares to other communities, but I feel like ours in particular is so interested in indie developers. Apple sort of gave independent developers a channel with the App Store to sell their apps and not feel like they needed to be part of larger companies and to, and to work on unique projects that meant things to them and hopefully meant things to other people, right? It could be profitable. And so, you know, I feel like people are always pushing the envelope in terms of what can be created and made. Also, my mentors, they definitely, it, it feels like every time I talk to one of them, they're doing something that's just incredible and it, it makes me just want to get better and, and push myself. I feel the same way at work. It's an extremely collaborative environment. And I feel really lucky to have that because I know what it's like to be on teams that are dysfunctional. And so, you know, we're a team of 10 now and everyone just loves each other, like spends way too much time hanging out with each other. To give you an idea, on Wednesday, let's see, four of my coworkers decided to build a box and then put it on our boss's desk. It's huge. It's literally takes up the whole thing. It's almost like we built a cubicle on top of his desk. And, you know, they do that stuff because they enjoy being with each other. But they're also incredibly good engineers. And that pushes you and just makes you want to get better and feel like you can contribute as well. It feels like there's also just an endless amount of things to learn, especially with Apple's turnaround of releasing new things within a year. You know, we have the the Apple Watch SDK came out late last year. The Apple Watch is going to drop maybe in April of this year. I have no inside knowledge. (laughs) And... (laughs) you know, that's exciting. I really want to buy one. And, you know, now I'm interested in sort of what kind of apps I can make for the Apple Watch or how it would even interoperate with my phone. There's just an endless amount of stuff. Is there any one person that's been probably the biggest influence on your professional life? Lately, it's an individual named Douglas Russell. 
And he's the person I spoke about who works on the accessibility team at Apple, OS X accessibility specifically. He lives in Seattle, and he actually didn't go to school for computer science. He actually dropped out. And he's a tremendous developer and also so just empathetic. And I think that's so important in the kind of position he's in. And it feels like every time I speak to him, he's just inspiring and, and making me feel like I can do more and push myself even further. Oh, he's the one, like you said, he introduced you to accessibility. Yes, exactly. Okay. What's something that you're incredibly proud of doing now that when you first started out doing it just like scared you to death? Oh, God, it's got to be the talk I most recently gave in uh, Moscow in, at the end of October. Oh, wow. Yeah, Moscow. I um, Yeah, tell me about that. I, there's no way I couldn't jump at this opportunity. But like you said, scared me to death. I uh, Basically, someone on the Dropbox engineering list sent out that he had gotten an invite to a conference and couldn't go and wanted to know if somebody else was interested in speaking. And I you know, sent an email fully expecting nothing, right? And sure enough, got an invite from this company named Yandex in Russia, which is essentially Google. They love to tell people that they were started before Google, which they were. And <laughs> it stands for yet another indexing service. And literally, they have Yandex Maps, Yandex Search. It's very similar. Has about, I think, 60% market share in Russia. And they put on an annual conference called Yet Another Conference. And it's, uh, they wanted me to speak on their mobile track. They, they had like a number of tracks, web, API. And, you know, I jumped at the opportunity. It was about a, a 30, 35 minute tech talk with Q&A afterwards. And I had a couple months to prepare a talk from scratch. And I loved it. It was a wonderful opportunity to, and that's what I mean about, you know, having those mentors or those people in your corner to say like, no, you, you do this. Like, don't be scared of this. Like, go out and do this because I wanted to do it. Right. But it's always that nice bit of encouragement that really helps you. So it was a wonderful experience. I was there for maybe five or six days and I think it's something that I will always cherish. And it, it sort of helped me get started with speaking more in public because after that I got to do a podcast on the debug podcast, which is a Apple technology-focused podcast at the end of December. Mm -hmm. And then now I'm doing two speaking gigs this year. The first is in Montreal for NS North. And then the second one is in May, and it's for CocoConf, and that one will be in Austin. And then, you know, there's blog posts I want to put out, and there's just a lot I want to do, even outside of technology. What are some other things that you want to do? Well, again, it goes back to the blog posts. Like, I okay. wrote that piece on recruiting, and, and that doesn't really have too much to do with my job, but it's it's me getting my voice out and sort of letting people know the, th the patterns and things I'm seeing in the industry. And my next blog post is going to be about heroes, and that'll be out very soon. And it'll be about sort of the importance of role models who look like you and are involved in the industry that you want to be a part of. Let's say that you've got the opportunity to kind of give yourself – your teenage self, let's say that, like your teenage self before you went off to college, you have the opportunity to give her some career advice. What would you tell her? I'd tell her to take computer science and stop being, stop pretending that she doesn't want to code. I, <laughs> honestly, I feel like I spent so much of my, because I, I got introduced to computers pretty early on. Uh, my mom bought me an IBM, it was like a G40 Aptiva, something like that. When I was, I think, seven, seven or eight. 
And my friend handed me my first programming book when I was 11 in sixth grade called C++ in 21 Days. And so I got introduced to technology pretty early on. Uh, you know, I built websites as a teenager. It always felt like it wasn't for me. You know, it didn't help that I didn't really look like any of the people. That, and this goes back, to, I guess, to the blog post I want to write about heroes. It didn't help that I didn't really look like any of the people that you perceive as computer programmers. And also, mm-hmm. I, I love to talk and I love to communicate. And those typically aren't seen as valued traits for people who just sit at their computer all day. So I think that more than anything... Uh, having this societal expectation of what made a programmer made me feel over and over and over that this wasn't for me. As much as I like technology, I, I kept thinking that there was a different aspect of technology I wanted to be involved in. And it really wasn't until I got to college and I actually, I didn't take computer science because again, I did not want to program, right? You know, I, I even took computer science courses in high school. I was lucky enough to take C++ and Java, but I just always felt like you know, there were students in there that were just way better than me. And I should, you know, this was fun for now, but I should go do something different, something that I could actually be great at. I just always had that nagging feeling in the back of my head. And so it wasn't until I got to college and, you know, I took information management technology instead. And I did my internship at Goldman Sachs. And right after that summer, I realized, oh, crap, I want to make things. (laughs) (laughs) And so at that point, you know, I was graduating early and I was going abroad. So technically I had two years left, but the reality is I only had about two semesters to fit in as many CS courses as I could on top of, you know, everything else I needed to take. So I was lucky enough to be able to take some, but I, man, if I could go back, I would just say, just take computer science. This like, you love this, like, just keep plugging at this. It's difficult, but that's okay. And eventually you'll find the mentors and it'll be fine that you don't look like everybody. Where did you study overseas? I studied in Madrid. So I went to Syracuse and Syracuse has a Syracuse University Abroad program. It's actually a really great program. They have it in a number of countries. I took the Madrid one. For me, Spanish was always something I wanted to learn. It's kind of funny because our program was very insulated. It was very easy to speak English in our program. We were not taught in (laughs) Spanish and there were so many students that didn't really know Spanish. So it was very easy to not be come out of that not being fluent. But I was lucky enough to stay with a host family. We all had to. And she was great. Her kids were great. And if if there's any Spanish that I still have traces of, it's because of her. (laughs) (laughs) So when I was doing my research, I saw on the Dropbox team page that you love, and I'm, I'm quoting this directly, torturing yourself with physical challenges. What all do you do? What is what does that mean? Oh, what all do I do? So that one specifically <laughs> refers to the Tough Mudder I did at, was it the end of 2013, I think? That sounds right. Maybe it was the end of 2012. So it was right before Tough Mudders became like the biggest event everyone has to do. And you see the t-shirts and, and headbands everywhere. And right. I say that not because not because I'm bragging about having been a pioneer in Tough Mudders or anything, but just because it's almost been fascinating for me to see them go from, you tell somebody you're doing a Tough Mudder and they're like, what? To everybody's like, oh my God, you did one. And in case anybody doesn't know, it's an event that's 10 to 12 miles. It's an obstacle course in the middle of nowhere. You're either going to be very hot or very cold, depending on the location you go in. And they literally have them worldwide now at this point. There's some in Melbourne. There's some in the UK. Most of them are in the United States. So for example, I live in California. There's one in Tahoe. There's one in SoCal, a couple hours outside of Los Angeles. And each obstacle, I don't know how many there are, maybe 30 or 40, 
it's stupid, the stuff they put you through. You'll run through, like, electrical wires, and some of them will actually zap you. I saw someone, like, faceplant into mud. Yeah. I don't know why anybody would sign up for these things. <laughs> wow. Uh, there's one called Arctic Enema, which they just revamped, but the idea... Ar- yes. Arctic Enema? Doesn't that sound awesome? <laughs> the idea <laughs> okay. being... You, you get in these, like, giant shipping containers that are full of ice-cold water. I don't know the exact temperature. And they get you because you have to dunk yourself. At the midway point, there's a wall. You have to go under it. And, you know, you come out the other end. And luckily, mine was so hot that it was like, oh, thank God. Like, you know, we need this. But, yeah, there are Uh some ones, you know, they do them in New Jersey in, like, October, November. And they'll do that same obstacle. And that would be hell. Could you imagine? (laughs) Why do you do it? Because I'm foolish. No, I just... (laughs) (laughs) You want to challenge yourself, you know? You're, you're doing uh-huh. stuff in the gym, you're lifting weights, and you're like, let me, let me... If Navy SEALs develop this program, it must be worth something. So, you know, you, you try it out, and you see if you're tough enough, I think is their, yeah. one of their mottos. Just like leveling up to the next thing. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So I did All that. Right. Uh, it's funny, because that end of year, it was like uh, within a month, basically. I did, I did them kind of backwards. I did a Tough Mudder. Then I did uh, the Nike Women's Half Marathon in San Francisco, like two weeks later. And then, like, two weeks after that, I did something called Warrior Dash, which is... Oh, I've heard of Warrior Dash. Oh, yeah. So, it's a, about a five-mile mud run, basically. And it's funny. I'm in Warrior Dash, and everybody there is like, you know, I'm working my way up to a tough mudder. And I'm like, I did this so wrong. <laughs> I did this so different. Then you're supposed to do this. <laughs> so, now the rest of them are kind of easy now, I guess. Oh, for sure. I also did a... Let's see. I did a... Earlier that year, actually, I did a triathlon that year. That was a big year. And I did that triathlon with Team in Training, which is an organization that raises money for lymphoma and leukemia. And so that was incredible. You had to raise, I think it was almost $3,000 to be able to go and compete in Hawaii. And in exchange for that, fundraising that, you got the opportunity to train with coaches for about five months before the... So they'd literally take you from like couch potato to, you know, competing in, in this triathlon. That was an incredible experience. Wow. Yeah. What other what other things do you do in your spare time? I love to read. Lately, I'm trying to read actual, real, tangible books instead of assorted articles on the internet. And so I actually got this awesome book called The Power of Habit, which has been really incredible. It's, it's all about how people and even organizations develop habits and how difficult they are to change. But they are changeable. They are malleable. And so it can be a habit about, you know, eating a lot or maybe smoking to organizations have habits about maybe how they manage safety. And it's a really interesting book. So trying to actually read books, there's another book called Checklist Manifesto, which is all about how essentially it's really important for people to write checklists of what needs to be done. And that's one of the best ways to ensure consistency. And so they take it, this individual takes it, relates it a lot to the medical profession and how important it is to just have a checklist for making sure that you meet all your safety guidelines and how critical that can be. Because so many things need to go right in order for the procedure to go correct. So trying to do that instead of like scanning <laughs> Google or Twitter. But in the morning, it's like whichever one I reach for. If, if it's the iPad mini or the, the actual book, that one wins for the day. Where do you see yourself in like the next five years or so? I would love to continue creating, especially at a, a high level. So for me, that could mean working on products that better Dropbox. It could be working on my own project, my own startup. But I really want to focus on making products that 
enrich lives and, and just make tasks simpler and easier to use. Ideally, in five years too, I, I guess ideally would actually be starting my own app in my own company. I think I'm working towards that. What do you think the app will be about? You know, I got five years to figure it out. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> well, uh, just to kind of wrap things up, where can our audience find out more about you online? On Twitter, I'm at Ashley and H. And in my bio or the link on Twitter, rather, is my blog, which I mentioned earlier. And that's blog.ashleyandh.me. All right. Ashley Nelson Hornstein, thank you again so much for taking time out to speak with me. It's very interesting to kind of learn about your progression and how you sort of came in one way with Apple. And then now you're like the serious, hardcore iOS developer. You're speaking at conferences and stuff. That's just awesome to see just in terms of, you know, sort of like you said, having that role model or someone that looks like you that's out there that's doing that. I think is really, really important. I'm glad that you're doing the work that you're doing. So thank you again for speaking with me. Absolutely. Thank you very much. And that's it for this week. Big thanks to Ashley Nelson Hornstein and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Ashley's work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. There's also a link there to a recent talk she did in Russia at Yandex in October last year. Thanks as always to our sponsors, MailChimp, Hover, and Creative Market. MailChimp is the premier email service provider choice for entrepreneurs and small businesses. You can send 12,000 emails to 2,000 subscribers for free. No contracts, no credit card required, and it's free forever. Check them out at MailChimp.com. Hover is the best way to buy and manage domain names, and they give you exactly what you need to get the job done. Get yourself a new domain or transfer your current domains to Hover and save 10% off your first purchase by using the promo code 28DOTW at checkout. And lastly, there's Creative Market, a marketplace that sells beautiful, ready-to-use design content from thousands of independent creators from around the globe. Head over to creativemarket.com, pick up those six free goods that are available for free every Monday. Also, don't forget to check out 28 Days of the Web, 28daysoftheweb.com. Great profiles on black designers and developers there. Share it with your friends, with your family, with your coworkers. There's only five days left, so make sure you check it out. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro is by Music Man Dre with intro audio by Yellow Speaker. The outro audio, They See Me Growing, is courtesy of Jimmy Square. Make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes. Leave a rating and a review. It really helps get new listeners, helps us move up the iTunes rankings. I'll even read your review right here on the show. Revision Path is a 318 media project. If you like the work we're doing with the podcast and the website, then visit revisionpath.com forward slash donate and let us know. Leave a tip in our tip jar, sponsor an upcoming episode, or join at the $5 fist bump level to show your ongoing support. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.